We're continuing this morning our study in Paul's second inspired letter to the Corinthians. Probably uh, there are indications that this might literally actually been the fourth letter he wrote. There are two others that are referred to that were not preserved by the church, uh, but in terms of uh, divine inspiration, this is his second letter. You remember after leaving Corinth, where he had a very successful uh, 18-month ministry, uh, some problems arose in the church, including and uh, abetted by false teachers who came in, among other things, seeking to undermine Paul's apostolic authority, uh, questioning his integrity, uh, and uh, so there had been something of a mutiny against him among uh, the Corinthian believers. And uh, Paul had apparently had visited there, uh, tried to address that uh, without success. He subsequently wrote uh, what he called a severe letter, which Titus uh, took there to Corinth. And by God's blessing, uh, between Paul's letter and Titus' presence, there was some significant uh, improvement, although not everything has been resolved. So uh, he's doing several things in this letter. Uh, He is uh, preparing for another visit where he's going to take a a collection that uh, other Gentile churches are gathering for uh, Jewish believers in in Jerusalem. Uh, He also is hoping to uh, complete the resolution of some of these other problems. And in the first part of the letter, the first seven chapters, he largely is describing his new covenant ministry. He begins uh, after his first words of introduction uh, by pronouncing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction. So that's the note on which he begins. Then he talks about some previous afflictions that he's experienced and is continuing to talk about uh, himself and his ministry. So um, we're going to begin this morning in verse 12 and read through verse 14 as Paul continues uh, writing the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me ask you to stand. Uh, I read this week, maybe some of you did. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay, for uh, leading the charge, sister. Um, uh, In Nehemiah chapter 8, about that wonderful uh, revival that occurred uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah and where uh, the people came to hear God's word and as Ezra stood up to read, it says all the people stood. So that's why I'm asking you to do that. All right, brothers and sisters, give attention to God's word beginning in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12. Paul says, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust that you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Please be seated. I am the greatest. When I was a young boy in the early 60s, a great boxer named Cassius Clay, who later changed his name to Muhammad Ali, made that claim frequently. During that same era, 
Broadway Joe Namath, who was a great quarterback under Bear Bryant at the University of Alabama and then with the New York Jets, is supposed to have said, I can't wait to wake up because every morning I am more handsome than the day before. Now these, these two examples stand out in my memory, but the 1960s were not unique in boasting. There's plenty of boasting going on even in 2024. In fact, there has been plenty of it virtually since the fall. That's why I read those three verses from Daniel. In the sixth century BC, King Nebuchadnezzar said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for my glory? Of course, at that point, I, I didn't finish reading, the Lord struck him and he was sent away to uh, live as an animal for seven periods of time, seven years or whatever the periods may have been. And long before Nebuchadnezzar, just a few generations after Adam, the first recorded song that we have in Holy Scripture is a boast in Genesis chapter 4. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It's a wicked boast, but it's a boast. And boasting is not just commonplace in human speech through the ages. It's actually quite common here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 30 times in 2 Corinthians, in various forms, the Greek word for boast that we have here. It's actually twice in these three verses, but it's implied in the last verse, and so many English translations add it, and I think legitimately, uh, where Paul says, um, we are your boast as you also are ours. It's implied as you also are our boast. So twice, literally, and once by implication, this word boast is here in these three verses and 30 times in the letter. So it's no surprise that this is a key thing in our text this morning. And as Paul moves from greeting the Corinthians into the main body of his letter, I think he's got some very interesting and helpful things to teach us this morning about boasting. The first one is this. There is such a thing as holy boasting, boast in, both in this life and in the life to come. There is such a thing as holy boasting, both in this life and in the life to come. Now, what is boasting? The Greek word here means rejoicing, exulting, glorying. It can also mean taking pride or proud confidence. But the primary meaning is just glorying in something, exulting or rejoicing in it. Now, the truth is, most of our human boasting is foolish and sinful. Because it's rooted in pride and it robs God of his glory. Paul had written to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? They apparently were boasting in their spiritual gifts, the abundance of spiritual gifts. 
He said, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you'd not received it? If you've got all these spiritual gifts, and he says, you're not lacking any gift, but it's not the credit's not to you, it's because of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Remember what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. And those are things that people tend to boast in. How much they know, what they can do, how much they have. Most of our boasting is sinful and foolish. But not all of it. Do you remember Jeremiah 9, 24? He said, don't boast in these things. But then in verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercise loving kindness and justice, for I delight in these things. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians 10, is going to quote that verse or allude to that verse twice when he tells the Corinthians in 1 and 2 Corinthians, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul said in Galatians 6, far be it from me, to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, I will boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think the, what I'm calling holy boasting, Paul doesn't add the word holy, I've added that, which we have in our text. I think uh, it's clear from what Paul says in verse 12 and verse 14, this is a legitimate kind of boasting. That's why I call it a holy, a godly boasting. So let me give you my definition of holy boasting. Holy boasting... I'm calling a humble and thankful recognition and celebration of God's grace in our own and others' lives. A humble and thankful recognition and celebration of God's grace in our own and in others' lives. Lives. And I suggest that this kind of boasting is holy because it's a form of praise to the Lord. It glorifies him rather than robbing of his glory and attributing to us something that is his. Now, in verse 12, Paul clearly speaks of this holy boasting as something that he does in this life. Notice the present tense, for our boasting is this. And so he's referring to something that he, in this life right now, is glorying and exulting in. In verse 14, I think he refers to it as something which will be done in the life to come. He says um, that we are your boast and you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Some English translations actually translate it in the future tense. On the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. But the point is, in these verses, verse 12, he speaks about a present tense boasting. And then in verse 14, 
a boasting that will occur on the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, what is the day of our Lord Jesus? Well, it's, it's a series of great eschatological. Eschatological means end times uh, events in which Christ will be fully revealed and acknowledged in all his glory. It will bring to completion God's plan for human history, at least to that point, and usher in the next glorious phase of God's plan when all things are made new. And so it's, it's a broad term. Uh, the day of Christ encompasses these various things. Jesus used the term in Luke 17, 24, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Paul wrote to the Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. When we will see him, John says in 1 John 3, and we will we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him in his glorified humanity. Now, a big part of that day is going to be Christ exercising the office of a judge. Jesus Christ, he said in John 5, 27, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. The New Testament speaks several times of the fact that he is coming to judge the living and the dead. Paul will say in chapter 5, verse 10 of this letter, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat was a place where a magistrate sat. It's like uh, the, the bench where the, the judge sits in the courtroom to exercise his official office of judgment. But that's not all. And it's interesting, Paul says, uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. And part of, of Christ's glory on that day will be exercising judgment, punishment on the wicked, but blessing and, and vindication, reward to the righteous. That's why I read from 2 Thessalonians 1, the passage I read a few minutes ago, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. And I think part of the way he's going to be glorified in his saints on that day is by holy boasting that Paul's talking about in verse 14. The saints are going to engage in holy boasting on that day. When Christ returns and they appear in his presence. David, and that's why I chose Psalm 34. You probably didn't pick up on it because I didn't, you didn't know unless you read the sermon text earlier that boasting was the, the topic and a key word. But what does David say in Psalm 34 too? My soul makes its boast in the Lord. He says in 44.8, in God we have boasted continually. 
And so these are just two examples of where David in the Psalms speaks of this idea of a holy boasting. At this point, they both occur here in time. And brothers and sisters, like our anger, like our laughter, our boasting reveals our value system. Our boasting reveals, Jesus said, the mouth speaks from what fills the heart. And what we laugh about and what we don't laugh about. What makes us angry, what doesn't make us angry, has a lot to do with our value system. What do we believe is true and good? What do we believe is false? The same thing is true of our boasting. It reveals a great deal about our value system, the things that we boast, that we glory and exult in, or that we do not. Let me ask a question. How much do you boast? In your heart, if not outwardly with your lips. Sometimes we may not say anything, but in our hearts we're boasting, we're glorying, we're exulting. And that's not necessarily wrong, but my question is, what is it that you glory or boast in outwardly or inwardly? How much of your boasting is holy boasting? A humble, grateful, exulting in God's grace to you and to others as well. And how much is not? I think our, that's contrary to our natural tendency, brothers and sisters. This is not our natural tendency. This is part of the fruit of God's grace in our lives to be able to want and to be able to boast in this holy way. Our natural tendency is to boast in other things. Psalm 17, I didn't call it your attention, but I think um, Vince mentioned it in his prayer, uh, or at least when we sang it, it. The first part is about men of the world who have their good things in this life. The last verse is what David's really looking forward to is when he awakes in the presence of God and puts on his image. But the, the, a lot of the psalm is about men of this world and, and the things here that are most important. <clears throat> Proverbs says, let another praise you and not your own lips. It's not wise, it's not good for us to brag to praise, boast about ourselves. To what extent do you crave the praise of men, of people? The flip side of that, to what extent do you fear their disapproval? How much does that motivate you? How much are you willing to do so that people will think well of you or not think ill of you? It's a very common idol, the praise of men. John 12, 42 and 43 says, Many of the priests also therefore believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not make it known because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so I think, again, brothers and sisters, this is a natural tendency that we all have. And so we have to be aware of it and be on guard against it that we are too prone to want to have the praise of men and to promote that by 
perhaps boasting, bragging ourselves rather than about the Lord and his goodness. But another question, I've asked you about your boasting, how much and what kind, how real and how important to you is the day of Jesus Christ? The fact, the unavoidable, inescapable fact, Jesus Christ is coming back in incredible glory. Majesty, power, his worst enemies are going to bow the knee and confess him as Lord. Those who do not know him will be condemned to everlasting punishment. And those who do will be welcomed into everlasting glory and abundantly rewarded for far beyond anything they've ever done in the way of works. He's so generous and gracious. To what extent does that great fact affect the way that you think and the way that you live your life? The choices you make, the decisions and actions. To what extent does his promise of rewarding your faithful service encourage and motivate you? Now, our ultimate motivation should be love, no question. But it's interesting how scripture uh, Realize one of the many wonderful ways the Bible is realistic is it uses a wide variety of ways to motivate us. It realizes that people are complex and we're motivated in various ways. And while our love for the Lord should be our chief motivation, Jesus himself and Paul and others talk about the fact that we also will be rewarded Again, ultimately by grace, not because we deserve it, because our good works or his work in us, but rewarded by our faithful service to him. Does that register and motivate you? I hope so, but I think it's at least a question that we need to think about as Paul talks about that. Do you long for the day of Jesus? And I have to confess, that's one of the good things I've experienced as I've gotten older. I think when I was younger, I had a lot of things I wanted to do and, and all of that. And, and I knew about and yeah, the, the return of Christ was a reality. But I can honestly say that I long for it more now. I can identify with Paul. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. Is that something for which you long and even pray? Come, Lord Jesus. Do you prepare for it? One way you and I can prepare for the day of Jesus Christ is by cultivating holy boasting. Paul says in verse 14, that's something we're going to do on that day. Glorify God rejoicing in him. And so as we cultivate holy boasting here and now, we're preparing for that day. So I think Paul makes it clear there is such a thing as Holy boasting, that's my term, not his. He just says boasting, but I'm calling it holy boasting, good boasting, which glories in and rejoices in God's grace and power and is appropriate and fitting both in this life and the life to come. But Paul does more than that. He also illustrates some things about which holy boasting is appropriate. <clears throat> the first one is this, and this is our second point. A clear conscience is one valid reason for holy boasting. A clear conscience 
is one valid reason for holy boasting. Verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. Now, what is conscience? It's been called our inner voice or inner witness. It's part of the imago Dei, part of the image of God in us. Even in fallen men, the the imago Dei is corrupted, but it's not completely eradicated. There is some sense, by virtue of common grace and common revelation, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Some things are right, some are wrong. Now, the conscience is not infallible. It needs to be instructed by God's word. But hear what Paul says about the Gentiles. Those were the people who had no knowledge of the true God, no knowledge of scripture in his day. When Gentiles who do not have the law, this is Romans 2.14, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They didn't have Holy Scripture, but in their hearts, even fallen, there's still some sense of right and wrong, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. And so the the reality that men have a sense of right and wrong, and if you read some of the great Greek philosophers Uh, like um, Aristotle and Plato and others who didn't have any reference to scripture wrote before the time of Christ and yet there's a sense there's such a thing as right and wrong. And why is it important? Why is our conscience important? It's not infallible but it is a God-given guide especially when it's informed by scripture and, and, and the spirit guides it to help us navigate between right and wrong James 4:17 Whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. And Paul writing in Romans 14 about indifferent things people had different ideas should I eat certain things should I not and he says you know there's a place to let each one uh, you know make their own decisions but he says he who doubts is condemned if he eats if he violates his conscience. <coughs> If he says, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm able to eat this, and he goes ahead, it manifests a willingness to do wrong when we go against our conscience. And so, that's why it's important. Paul told Timothy, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And brothers and sisters, if we get in the habit of violating our conscience, ignoring that, it it will lead us farther and farther away. How important was a clear conscience to Paul in general? In Acts 24, 16, he says, I always take pains, and it takes pains, to have a clear conscience toward God and toward men. And how about in this particular context that we're looking at this morning, how important was that to Paul? Well, it's his defense against one of the slanders of his enemies. Apparently, these false teachers were telling the Corinthians, 
Paul is um, a shady operator. He's deceptive. He writes things that are tricky and not true. He says one thing, he does another thing. In chapter 12, verse 16, he says, he quotes, apparently quoting some of the things that have been said about him. I was crafty, you say, and I got the better of you by deceit. He was being accused, again, of being a shady operator. And that's why it's so significant when he says, our boast, we glory, we rejoice in this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world generally with simplicity. Now, simplicity is the opposite of duplicity. Duplicity means hypocrisy, deception. Say one thing, do another. Appear to be one thing, do another. Paul says, no, we weren't like that. We, uh, conduct, we behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not according to earthly wisdom. And supremely towards you. We, in general, our, our, our lives in the world are characterized that, but especially towards you Corinthians. We've got a clear conscience that we never did anything that was deceptive or tricky to you. Apparently, they had not understood completely or misunderstood some of the things that Paul wrote. And Peter in 2 Peter 3 says, in Paul, there are some things hard to understand. But it wasn't because Paul was trying to, to trick him in any way. In 4.2, when you get to chapter 4 of this letter, he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's interesting, in 5.11... He says, what we are is known to God. And I think that was a great encouragement to him. I know it has been to me in some situations when I've been misunderstood or falsely accused. To be able to say, well, Lord, you know the truth. If other people misunderstand, misperceive, you know the truth. I think that's why having a clear conscience was a, a source of boasting of joy and glory to Paul for a number of reasons. It was a source of peace and joy in his walk with God, his walk with Jesus Christ. The one to whom he's ultimately accountable and the one who ultimately knows everything. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. And when Paul knew that the Lord knew the truth, that was a source of joy and peace. It also gave, or at least should have given, and he's arguing here, this should be a, a, a source of credibility with you Corinthians. Although it's not always the case. It was a means of answering his detractors' accusations. And how was Paul able to keep a clear conscience? How can you and I do it? Notice what he says in verse 12. We conducted ourselves in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. The grace of God 
enable Paul and his team. He's using we here. He's referring to himself and his co-workers, his fellow uh, ministry team, to operate and keep a clear conscience. And it can do that for you and me as well, brothers and sisters. In the midst of family problems, church problems, disappointments of various kinds, it is a wonderful comfort to be able, like Paul, to say, I may be sad about these different situations, but I'm grateful that I have a clear conscience. How about you this morning? Dear brother, dear sister, do you have a clear conscience before the God, Psalm 51, 6, says, you delight in truth in the inward being before the God who knows everything about you, every thought, every motive. Before people, your family members, your spouse, your children, your parents and siblings, church members, friends, co-workers. And how important is it to you to have a clear conscience? It was profoundly important to Paul. I always take pains, and again, brothers and sisters, it can and sometimes it will take pain to have a clear conscience. But the good news is, Paul's assumption, the good brothers and sisters, you can have a clear conscience no matter what your sins have been. Sins of your mind and heart as well as outward sins that you've actually done. <clears throat> it is possible for the worst of sinners to have a perfectly clear conscience before Almighty God. I mean, Paul was a blasphemer. He hated Jesus. He blasphemed. He, he was a murderer of Christians. And yet here he can say he rejoiced, he gloried, he boasted in having a clear conscience. How is that possible? Forgiveness through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, the only person who ever lived a sinless life, who had a perfectly clear conscience, who never had to repent of anything, was our blessed Lord Jesus. And not only did his blood pay for all of our sins, outward and inward, but his perfect righteousness is imputed and credited to us. The Heidelberg Catechism says that our standing before God is as if we had never sinned or been a sinner. As if we had been as perfectly obedient inwardly and outwardly as Jesus Christ was obedient for us. And so that wonderful justification, when we come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, nothing but the empty hands of faith. Again, we only contribute our sins. That's our only contribution to our salvation, saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Uh, I want to turn from my sin, living for myself, and live for you. Uh, would you forgive me for Jesus' sake? And he does. And even though we continue after that, we're new creatures, we're changed. 
We continue to struggle with sin, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He's faithful and just. He can do it justly. Because of what Jesus has done to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that underscores again, brothers and sisters, the <clears throat> importance of repentance, not just initially, that, that act of repentance and faith where we come to Christ initially, but as we walk with him. And so I would commend three words or three phrases to you to help you keep a clear conscience. Husbands with your wives, wives with your husbands, parents and children. But first and foremost with the Lord. That's why it takes pains. I was wrong. That's where it begins. I was wrong. Fill in the blank. When I said so and so, when I did so and so, when I didn't do what I should have done. I'm sorry. Expressing regret, appropriate regret for wrongdoing. Please forgive me. And of course, we're promised, 1 John 1, 9, I quote a minute ago, that the Lord will do that when we come to him as, as believers, come to him confessing. He is quick to forgive us, and we're told that we're to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And I would urge upon you, brothers and sisters, the importance of keeping short accounts. Don't let your sins, your violations of your conscience pile up. I heard of a man who said at the end of the day he would pray and look back over the day and where he thought he might have sinned, confess that. Let me encourage you not to do that. As soon as you're convicted, as soon as you're aware, then be quick. If it involves a person that you need to make things right, go to the person. If it's just between you and the Lord, but be quick. Keep those short. So besides illustrating the validity of holy boasting, Paul also illustrates reasons why believers can do so, at least one reason he has in their text, why we can do so in this life because of God's grace enabling us to keep a clear conscience and live a life of godly integrity. That's what we're talking Integrity means wholeness, oneness. An integer, I believe, back in the day when I was in school, math has changed so much, but an integer used to be a whole number. Is that right, guys? And integrity comes from that same root. It means to be whole. What we are on the outside is what we are on the inside. But there's something else. This is our last point this morning. Fruitful ministry is another valid reason for holy boasting. Fruitful ministry, Paul says, is another valid reason for holy boasting. We're not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand, and I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you've understood us in part. Again, they apparently had, not, had misunderstood some things Paul had written. It wasn't because he was trying to deceive them. The problem is their lack of understanding. He assumes they will come to get it. That we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Others' fruitful ministry to us is a valid reason 
for holy boasting. Paul anticipates on the day of our Lord Jesus, the Corinthians will boast. They will humbly and gratefully acknowledge and celebrate God's grace to them through Paul and his missionary team. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. Though, I have, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He was their spiritual father. He was the first one who preached the gospel, and at least the, the original congregation led them to Christ and into the kingdom. In um, <clears throat> chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul was not only their spiritual father, he was a spiritual matchmaker. He was the one the Lord used to betroth them to Christ, their great husband. So he says... On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us. One of the reasons they are going to glorify God and rejoice on the day. They say, Thank you, Lord, for sending Paul to us. He was the one that you used to save us, to grow us. But there's another reason. Paul mentions not just others' fruitful ministry to us but our fruitful ministry to others is also a valid reason for holy boasting. Paul anticipates on the day of the Lord Jesus, he and his missionary teammates will boast. They will humbly and, glad and gratefully rejoice in God's grace and power through them to the Corinthians. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will of you. He'll say in chapter 3 of this letter, 2 Corinthians, you yourselves, apparently the false teachers made a big deal of letters of introduction. They had uh, letters or uh, credentials from various church leaders perhaps, and they were making a big deal about that. Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show you're a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He says, your existence as a church, a congregation, is our letter of recommendation. You exist because we came and preached and ministered, and here you are. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul asks, and here's his answer. Is it not you? Thessalonians, for you are our glory and our joy. Do you have faithful shepherds? And I know that you do. I know they're not perfect. But Vince and Brad are godly men and they love you and they take their shepherding responsibilities very seriously. Do you have faithful spiritual shepherds formally like ruling teaching elders 
and other believers, other Christians. They may not be church officers, but they are people whom the Lord has used by their example, their prayers, their teaching, uh, their counsel. The, the Lord has used them in your life to help you know Him, to help you grow in grace. You need to do some holy boasting about that. They're a gift of the Lord. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out labors. And if there have been labors, whether they're official officers or otherwise, they're ultimately from God. Ephesians 4, Christ who ascended on high gave gifts. He's the one who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. That does raise another question. What kind of sheep are you? We're talking about your shepherds here, those who the Lord has used to bless you. But what kind of sheep are you? Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. If the Lord were to come back today and Vince and Brad, others would have to give an account and say, well, what sort of sheep, how was it for you shepherding, overseeing this or that person? What would they say about you? It was a joy. It was a blessing. It was a grief. It was a burden. It was a headache. Again, are you a willing, teachable sheep to those that the Lord has put over you? And let me say a word, uh, Brad's not here, Vince is here, uh, only one ruling elder, uh, no other teaching elders besides me, uh, some deacons, uh, but to those of you who have an office of ministry, and to you brothers and sisters in Christ, you all have gifts, and I don't know you well, but I know you well enough to know many of you ministering in various ways to other people. Has the Lord blessed you? Has he made your ministry to others fruitful? It might be a physical ministry as well as a more specifically overtly spiritual ministry. Has the Lord used you to bless other people? Have you brought, been means of bringing some people to Christ and into the kingdom? Or helping in various ways? If so, have you been sufficiently grateful and faithful in celebrating his grace, not just to you through others, but through you to others. Thank you, Lord, that you gave me the privilege of teaching, counseling, encouraging, advising, praying, cooking, bringing food, doing other things. If the Lord has used you to minister to others, that too I think Paul says, should be a source of holy boasting. Others ministry to you and your ministry to them. So, to summarize and review, brothers and sisters, there is such a thing as holy boasting in this life and in the next. A clear conscience is one reason for holy boasting. And fruitful ministry to us and by us is another reason for holy boasting. And you can look for others too, but I think these are the ones that Paul speaks to particularly in our text. 
So even though in just a few minutes, when we sing the doxology after the benediction, I know some of you are going to raise your hands, but you're not a congregation of holy rollers. But I would be very pleased, and I think the Lord would be too, if you were to be justly known as a congregation of holy boasters. If your personal, family, church lives were more and more marked by a humble, grateful celebration of God's grace in you, through you, and in others. Paul gives us a warrant for that in our text this morning. As I said earlier, he twice says in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we sang that when we sang Psalm 34, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. After which he calls upon the people, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. May God help us to do that more and more every day that we live. So that on the day of Jesus, you and I will be well prepared to join with the angels and the other saints in holy boasting to his glory. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Please stand for prayer.